Bernard. How you doing today? Boy, you got a relationships. We're talking about how we are not made to be alone. We're just not made to live life alone. But more and more, increasingly, what, what, what uh, science has told us and what I think probably our feelings tell us too, is particularly over the past several decades, we are living more and more in isolation. We are living more and more in loneliness. We are, we are building a society of of separation. Um, and often, instead of pursuing community and pursuing relationships, we can often pursue substitutes. 
the things that, that might entertain us or distract us or indulge us, and they don't fulfill us the way that real human connection does. And we talked a little bit last week about how social media was a great supplement to real human connection, but it is not a great replacement. And too many of us are replacing that. Um, and we're not having that face-to-face -face imperfect relationship. We talked about how Life is better when we live it together. And that community not only enriches our lives, but it's essential, essential to a fulfilling life. And it just doesn't work if we're passive. It doesn't work if we don't actively invest in it. It doesn't work if we don't pursue it. It doesn't work if we don't prioritize it. If it's an afterthought, it just doesn't work because that's how we found ourselves in the situation that we are now, being isolated and disconnected. Way more than our forefathers and ancestors. And so what do we do with that? Because when we're talking about community and how great it is and how wonderful it is and how enriching it is and encouraging and building up, when we talk about those things, I know there's a tiny little voice in all of us, a tiny little cynical voice that goes, yeah, easier said than done, right? Like, we're, we're kind of living in fantasy land sometimes when we talk about community, or at least we think we are. It's like, yeah, but in the real world, it doesn't work that way. Trust me, I've been there, I've tried that, I've done that. It doesn't really work that way. So how do we do this? You know, maybe it was like that for you, or maybe it was like that for the early Christians, the apostles, or maybe it's like that for some people at some churches, or maybe in, in the international church, but that's different for me. I have a different experience. It makes me think of a couple of years ago, how uh, for Christmas, uh, me and Sarah and our two daughters, Julianne and Winter, we uh, went down to Atlanta to visit her grandparents for Christmas. And uh, her aunt and uncle were there, her mom and dad were there, and we just had a great time. It was just great being with family over Christmas, and you know, you're sharing the Christmas meal and opening Christmas presents, especially when you have two little kids, because you know, everybody's like, kind of living through them, you know, the joy of opening presents, like, oh, that's so adorable. But I remember like at the end of our time, um, there for, for that Christmas uh, trip, we, you know, everyone's kind of tired. It was the end of the night. We went out to their uh, fire pit. They had this really nice fire pit area right outside uh, their downstairs area with these Adirondack chairs and stuff. And we were just relaxing out there and just, it was just so peaceful. So, and it was one of those where we were just like enjoying the silence together, right? Oh, it was so good. In that moment, my wife, Sarah, popped up and goes, you know what we should do? We should play a game. And we're like, okay. What, what kind of game do you have in mind? She goes, I brought one from home. It's called Bean Boozle. If anyone is familiar with Bean Boozle, right? So I, at the time, I wasn't. Um, probably, <laughs> like, if, if you're, yeah. So uh, she, she had to explain it to us. Because, like, okay, what is this Bean Boozle game? How do you play this? You know? And so she explains to us that there's just a whole bunch of jelly beans in this box. And they're all different colors. And there's a wheel that goes with it too, and a little spinner right there. And what you do is you just flick that spinner and it lands on a color. And then that color of jelly bean is the one you reach in and pull out and eat. But here's the thing, that color can be either a good flavor or a really gross flavor. She's explaining this to us and I'm going like, this, how does this sound like a fun game? I don't, I don't know if I want to play this, right? But everybody else wanted to do it, so they kind of peer pressured me into it, right? So, um, so she flicks the wheel. Oh, what did she got? Because I, I remembered the color combination. She gets green. First one she lands on, green. Okay. You look at the box, and it says, green can either be lime or grass clippings. Okay. So I'm interested to see how this is going to happen. So she reaches in, picks out a green jelly bean, pops it in her mouth. After a second, she goes, 
ooh, it's lime. And I was like, oh, okay, well, wonderful. So, so it goes around the circle. I'm the last one in the circle to get it, right? You got a, most of them were good, a few of them bad. You know, people made faces or whatever. It gets to me, and I'm like, okay, I don't know what to expect. I've never done this before. I flip the thing. It lands on brown. Right? So already I'm like, oh my goodness, like, what is this? So I lean over and I read it, and it says uh, either, uh, what did it say, uh, chocolate fudge or dog food. Okay, I was like, all right. Whew, okay, dog food. And I'm thinking, like, okay, dog food is still technically food. How bad could that be, right? Like, I mean, it's, I'm not really risking anything. So I reach in and I grab brown jelly bean and pop it in my mouth. And here's the thing you need to know about these jelly beans, okay? It takes a second for that flavor to get you. You know what I mean? Like, you can't just, like, nibble on it on the edge and, and like, ew, gross, and throw it away. No, 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 you pop that thing in your mouth, and it was all up in your teeth and all over your tongue before finally I had this dread wash over me. Oh, my goodness, I'm eating real dog food right now. How can they do that? They put dog food in a jelly bean. It was, it was pretty gross. And I was like, I mean, this, this is exactly how I imagine dog food. This is how it smells. This is what it smells like after my dog throws it up. It was just terrible. It was terrible. It was terrible. So Sarah thought that was hilarious, right? Because I'm making faces and I'm trying to keep it together. She just thinks that's funny. And I'm like, okay, well, you got lime. All right, here you go. She's next. You flick it. See what you get. She flicks the thing. It lands on yellow. And yellow was either, uh, oh, what was it? It was like either pineapple. Was it, was it yellow? Yeah, yeah. It was either pineapple or um, uh, dirty socks. That's what it was. And I'm like, okay, that dog food tasted like real dog food. So if, if she gets dirty socks, I want her to taste real dirty socks <laughs> at this point, right? Like, I'm, I'm like, I hope you get a bad one. She pops it in her mouth and she goes, Mmm, it's pineapple. <laughs> I was like, dang. He goes back around. It gets back to me. Uh, so uh, <laughs> basically, we kept doing this all night. Like, I, I remember I flipped it, and I got um, orange. I landed on orange. And I looked down, and it said it either be orange or vomit. <laughs> I popped that thing in my mouth. People, Aspen Grove, I, I tell you, this tasted like real throw up. I mean, it was, it was terrible. It was awful. And I'm sitting there trying to keep it together. I was like, because oh, I am not going to throw up in front of her family on Christmas, right? Like, I'm not, I'm like sweating, you know, I'm like, mm, fine. She's cracking up beside me, right? This went on the entire game. We kept going around. I kept getting every single bad one. Every single one she got was a good flavor, except for one, she got blue, and it said it could be either blueberry or toothpaste. And I was like, how is toothpaste the bad one? We already put that in our mouths. Like, that, that's not fair. And she got toothpaste. She's like, ew, gross toothpaste. And I was like, shut up. That's not a real gross one. Right? So it gets to the end, and she has this idea. She's like, you know, how about, okay, to, to end it all, we'll all get the same color, and we'll just all take it one after another. And we, we had learned that there are seven of the good flavors and seven of the bad flavors, right? She flicks it, she spins it, it lands on white. So I look down at white, and white can either be coconut, which I don't even like coconut, so even if I win, I lose this round, right? Like, I'm not even a fan. Or spoiled milk. Yeah, yeah. So, so we all pull out a white one, you know, and we're like, all right, go ahead. So, of course, she pops it in her mouth. And she's like, oh, coconut. <laughs> you know, I was like, <laughs> I kid you not, guys, there were six people after her in front of me. 
and every single one of them got spoiled milk, okay? They're making faces. She's cracking up, right? It gets to me. There's one spoiled milk left and six coconuts left. And I was like, and she's like giving me a hard time poking me. I'm like, oh, whatever. So with all the confidence of an idiot, I just popped this sucker in my mouth. And I'm telling you, it was an ugly sight. Like it was not pretty. I was heaving and standing up and walking. You know, I mean, this tastes like some old milk. She's dying laughing. I'm looking over her. I was like, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, oh, that was fun. You know, we should do that every Christmas. No, no, we're not doing that. I had a very different experience than she did in that game, (laughs) right? She, we were in the same place doing the same thing, but her experience was, it was fun and it was funny. And my experience was not that. My experience was negative. And oftentimes, we can feel this way when it comes to community. When we're talking about the idea of it, when we're talking about what community should be, what relationships should be, what church should be, maybe you've had that experience, but I have a different experience in church. Because community isn't always the way that you've described it. Church doesn't always work that way in real life. For example, not everyone is always welcome. Maybe you've had that experience. I remember a couple years ago, I was at sports clips getting my hair cut, and the woman who was cutting my hair, you know, we were talking and chatting, and of course, it came up. She asked, well, what do you do for a living? I told her I was a pastor, so we started talking about church and all this stuff, and it was really great kind of, you know, gospel conversation we were having there, but then she goes, you know, when I was a kid, I loved going to church, and I just, I just haven't gone back, and so I asked her, well, if you really loved going to church, well, you know, why'd you stop? She tells me when she was a teenager The church she went to every Sunday night, they had their youth group, and they would bring their van around and pick the neighborhood kids up. And so they would bring the van around, and and so she went out one time and picked up, they picked her up, and she went and had a great time, but she did notice that when she was there, some of the people were kind of looking at her weird, because she was wearing torn jeans and kind of an oversized t-shirt, whereas most of the other girls were wearing dresses or skirts or were looking very pretty. And after a couple of weeks of this, finally someone had told her, you know, if you're going to come to church, you have to wear a dress wear a skirt. You can't come with like torn jeans on. And see, she struggled with this because she was poor. She's like, this is all I have is torn jeans. This is all my mom gave me. I don't have anything pretty and nice like what you guys have. And so the next Sunday, she showed up there on the street corner there waiting for the the bus, the van to come pick her up in her torn jeans and her oversized t-shirt. And the van came by and didn't even slow down. It just drove on. And she said, that's the last time she ever went to church. Maybe some of us here have had experiences like that, where I've been to a place and people looked at me funny because I didn't fit in and I didn't look the way that they looked and maybe I didn't act the way that they act and I just felt like I didn't belong here. I felt like maybe I wasn't welcome here. That's not necessarily an uncommon experience in churches across America. Maybe you've had that experience before in your past. I think Aspen Grove is is a phenomenal church, but we're not a perfect church, so maybe even here at some point. Who knows? Maybe we've had that experience um, of the toxic church. You know, I was welcomed there, but it wasn't a healthy place. It wasn't like what you're describing. It wasn't encouraging. It wasn't uplifting. It was really kind of stressful, and it caused a lot of anxiety. Maybe it's not even church. Maybe it's a different kind of community. Maybe it's work, right? Like we talked about last week, one of the most important things about community and relationships is showing up, right? Well, I show up at work every day. I spend all these hours at work with these people every day, but I wouldn't necessarily call this an uplifting community. Maybe this is kind of a a toxic work culture. Maybe this is a, a place that doesn't uplift. Maybe it's 
it's a place that causes me to be cynical, a place that weighs me down. And I'm with these people all the time. Why isn't it working? Maybe it's not work. Maybe it's a friend group. That friend group that, man, you know what? We're not praying for each other and sharing each other's burdens and sharing each other's sins and encouraging one another and celebrating with one another and mourning with one another. All we're doing is talking bad about each other and gossiping about each other and gossiping about other people. And it's, you know, if I step back and, 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 and take an honest look at it, it's really not healthy. Maybe you've had that experience before. Maybe it was your family. Man, my family experience was one that it what didn't build me up or, or it didn't, it didn't uh, empower me and strengthen me. It, maybe you've had a family experience where it taught you to do the opposite. It taught, taught you to be self-protective and to close up and to build that hard shell. And maybe one of the reasons now it's so hard to do community is because that shell is so in place. Maybe you've had that experience. Community can sometimes be exhausting and sometimes even damaging. Maybe it was even with one person. I tried to invest in this relationship and they hurt me and they burned me and they betrayed me and it just did me in and I don't know if I can do it again. Community can be hard. Relationships can be difficult. Because when we do life together, we experience friction. We experience ugliness. We experience the imperfection of humanity. I had a professor once tell me that when I was looking to be a part of a church and be a pastor there, he said, Brandon, if you ever find a perfect church, don't go there. Because then you'll mess it up. Oh, geez, thanks. But that's true. If they're perfect, then leave them alone, right? But implying that there's no such thing as an imperfect church. There's no such thing as a perfect community. There's no such thing as a perfect relationship. It always has friction. It always, at some point, we encounter ugliness. We encounter difficulty because sometimes it's hard. So how do we do this? How do we do it right? How do we have the kind of community that does enrich us, that does lift us up? I believe that community works best in the way that Jesus taught us. Man, I think that he is not just some guy, and when he talks, he's got a lot of good things that we can listen to. And he talks a lot about what it looks like to do community, and what it looks like to do relationships, and what it looks like to live together. And Jesus and the apostles gave us guidance of how to do this best. And I get it, I get it. When I talk about church, when I talk about the right way or the wrong way, there's a lot of us that's like, well, there's no right way or wrong way to do church, right? There's all kinds of different churches, and, you know, well, you say you want to do it because that's just the way you are, right? Like, you're all lovey-dovey, and you want to do it the right way and be encouraging, but not every church. Like, people, like, kind of, ooh, they don't like it when we talk about there's a right way to do church and there's a wrong way to do church. And I think we have that, that belief because we believe that about Jesus. Like we have different views of Jesus. We kind of just make up our own views of the church because we make up our own views of Jesus, right? We just kind of invent the Jesus in our mind. And it not necessarily is the Jesus found in history and found in scriptures. And I love that there's this beautiful um, American classic film that explores this theme of what it's like when people have different views of Jesus. It's just this great uh, classic called Talladega Nights. Let's take a look at Don't tell Adam I showed that. So <laughs> he won't let me come back. 
No, we do that with Jesus. We just kind of invent our own Jesus. And we do that with church too, where it's like, ah, oh, we just invent our own church. But I want to push back against that notion. I want to challenge that notion. I want to propose that maybe there is a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And, and to look at what that right way is, just look at, let Jesus speak for himself. Go to his words himself. Don't just listen to what I say, but let's look at what Jesus said. Um, one of Jesus' closest friends, a guy named John, who we're going to be looking at a little bit later too, but he wrote this biography of Jesus, his time spent with Jesus. He was one of Jesus' three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. Of all the apostles and all his followers, these three guys were the closest people to Jesus. And he wrote a biography of Jesus about his experience with him and all that he learned and all that he saw. And he wrote this in chapter 13 of his biography. He said, this is what Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so follow my example, so you must love one another. You must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus said, this community that I'm talking about, this community that I'm inviting you to be a part of, this community only works if we love each other. In fact, if we love each other so much and so intensely, we are so committed to loving each other and to loving others, if we're so committed to that, that that is our primary characteristic. That this community Jesus is talking about is primarily characterized by love. And if you think about all the things that church does and all of the important things about church and what we do and, and why we gather, we gather here to teach and to learn. We gather here to grow and to know the right path for our lives. We gather here to find guidance. We gather here to find inspiration. We gather here to worship and to praise God and to give God all this glory. We gather, all of those things are good things, but he says the number one thing about this community I'm talking about is primarily love. That we love each other so much that it is so important to us that that is how the world knows us. Barnett did a study recently, a survey in America to find out when you hear church, what are the things you think of? The top three answers were one, anti-gay, two, judgmental, and three, hypocritical. Jesus says the community he's talking about will be known by our love because our love is so radical and it is just so all-encompassing. But what we see today in America is we are known by negative things. Is it any wonder it's hard to invite people to church? Is it any wonder that so many churches across America are struggling and even declining? Man, because that's what they think of us. And maybe they have good reason. But Jesus says that we should love so intensely, love so much that people will see that there's something different about our community. That group of people that get together, anytime someone walks in these doors, the, the number one thing that they should say is like, you know what? I felt like I belonged. I felt accepted. Those people were friendly. Those people were warm. All of these other words we use to describe those people are loving people. They should know that there's something different about us. This radical view, how Jesus says, hey, you should love your brothers and sisters. And then he says things like, you should love others. Just, just strangers, just anybody. And then he says crazy things like, you should love your enemies. Like, this is crazy love. This is like, man, but this is who we are. What if that was how we were known? See, I'm starting a new church 
in Nashville. I'm working with, I'm trying to put a network of organizations and people and churches together to come together and say, hey man, Nashville is growing like never before and it's primarily from people who are coming from California. They're coming from uh, Chicago, Seattle. They're coming from places that are traditionally unchurched. A lot of people coming here have no church background, no understanding of Jesus. This is the biggest mission field that probably Nashville has ever seen right here in our backyard. And so we bought a house in East Nashville. And we said, hey, we're going to start a church. And we're trying to get people together to say, hey, who will support us in finances and in prayer? And, and who will go with us to help us to just get it started and get up on our feet and get this community going? And who will go with us to make this their church community? And we're trying to get people together so that we can reach people far from God. Who, who believes in the mission of reaching people far from God? Who has experienced community and experienced Jesus in their life and you know that it's amazing and you just want to share it with everyone? Who wants to do that with us? And I get people ask me, how are you going to do that? These people, they don't don't go to church. They They don't love Jesus. Some people are even hostile to Jesus. How are you going to share the gospel with them? What are you going to do there? How are you going to reach them? Because Jesus says hard things, right? Jesus says difficult things. Jesus challenges us to change our lives. How are you going to do that in downtown, in Nashville, especially East Nashville? I get people ask me that all the time. I heard a pastor once say, wouldn't it be great if people disagreed with what we believed, but couldn't help but respect the way we loved? Can you imagine if that were the case? That people couldn't help but acknowledge that we love people. They couldn't help but respect. What if that was the starting point of our faith? What was that was the starting point of people's introduction to church? What if that was the starting point of our relationships? That we love each other so much and it's so clear. You can't even deny that I love you. So that everything that comes after that, if there are hard truths or difficult conversations or, or whatever that is, you know that I love you. What if that were the starting point of our relationship, that we just worked so hard to establish, hey man, you know that I care about you. I, I think of people in my life that are like that. I have a friend, Big Mike, I've known him since high school. I know that this guy loves me. I know this guy wants me to win. He is for me. And he knows I'm the same way about him. We've been friends for, for a long time, right? And so any, that gives him the opportunity to speak truth into my life. That gives him the opportunity to speak encouragement in my life because the starting point is love hey man, you know that I'm not going to say this because of some power dynamic, right? You know that I'm not saying this because I'm trying to get you down or I'm trying to assert my dominance over you, right? That's, so, that's the relationship of so many, particularly men, right? So no wonder we can't encourage each other. We don't encourage each other. We can't because the power dynamic of our relationships is not love. What if the starting point was love? And I, and I, and I get that some people say, well, that's just you, Brandon, you're one of those, I, I, you, you're one of the good ones, right? You care about love, but it's not all about that. That's just your interpretation. That's just your view of the church because that's the way you are. Let me be super clear on this. At the end of John's life, when he was, he was exiled because he was sharing the message of Jesus, he's on this island, he's living in exile, and he wrote this letter to the Christians to, to be distributed to encourage Christians. This is at the very end of his life. One of the last things he says to Christians is this. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Elsewhere, he said this, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. God is serious about love. 
And if we are not primarily characterized by love, then we're not the church because the church is the community of Jesus. And he said his community is all about love above all else. And maybe I would be nervous of wearing the name of Christ. If, I mean, I, I think of that, man, especially as a pastor. I get up in front of people and I tell people I'm a pastor. I'm like, man, that's convicting to me. I've got to make sure that I love people and that people know me that way. And we can't expect our community to work if it's not characterized by love for one another. It won't work, right? If we try to get together and make it work, but we don't have love, it's just not going to work. So we shouldn't be surprised. But instead, we say, hey, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right, and it's going to be good, and it's going to be enriching and fulfilling and uplifting. This is going to be something good and exciting and fun in my life. And we're going to make sure that the number one thing is that we love people. Who's invited to this? Who do we love? Is it just Christians? Here's what's interesting about Jesus. Uh, his friend Mark wrote this biography, um, and he wrote about this, this situation uh, that Jesus encountered. There's a new number I could have pulled from, but this is the one I went with. But it says this, Once again, Jesus went outside beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. So this is just a big crowd of people, just whoever shows up, right? Whoever wants to gather together to hear the teachings of Jesus. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? We've got to understand, this isn't the IRS, okay? The tax collectors are the arm of the oppressors. The tax collectors are the, the, the people of Israel who work for the Roman Empire who was oppressing them. And this isn't just like, man, we got taxes, but they got taxes, man. Like this is, I mean, this, so the people, they were the worst of the worst. They were the betrayers. If you were a tax collector for the Roman, Roman Empire, this is our political enemies. Maybe today this would be people who wear red, make America great hats, or maybe people who are far left who voted for Hillary. These are our political enemies. Why is he hanging out with these people? We don't see that today, right? Man, we see more polarization today than ever before. That's not what Jesus was doing. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Who did Jesus eat with? Who was welcome at his table? Who was welcome to gather with him to hear his teachings? It was everybody, man. He's inviting everyone to be a part of this. Who, who wants to eat with me? Who wants to do this with me? Who wants to walk with me? Who wants to begin? Levi was a tax collector. Hey, come and follow me. You don't get it right now. You don't, maybe don't even believe right now. He had people who didn't believe in him. His own brother was one. A guy named James did not believe that he was Lord and Savior. But later on, he became a believer. But do you think that Jesus was like, oh, you don't believe in me? You're out of here? No, that's not what he does. Everyone was welcome. The people he's calling us to love is everyone. The community that he's talking about is one where every single person person is welcome. Broken people are welcome, and sinners are welcome, and non-Christians are welcome, and all people are welcome, because when you gather here, number one, you will experience love, and number two, you will hear the good news of who Jesus is and what that means for our lives. That's the community he's talking about. That's the community that changed the world. 
The entire Roman Empire was trying to squash that community. All of their money and all of their military and all of their politics and all of their culture was behind squashing this community, but they couldn't. This community spread like nothing this planet has ever seen before because this was something radically different. A community primarily characterized by loving everyone. You didn't see that in ancient times. You didn't see that in ancient Rome. You see, not everyone was a person in Rome. There were varying degrees of personhood in Rome. When you look at history, the, the pater familias, he was a person, right? The head of the household. But then the household under him was varying degrees of persons. I mean, you had women who were property, obviously. We know that from history. We have slaves who were essentially animals, and that wasn't even a racial thing. It was like an economic, political thing. It was all kind. They loved to dehumanize and depersonify anyone they could. These varying degrees. They, it, there were so many of this, that, that, that especially among slaves. They had such a slave population that they wouldn't even give their kids names. A slave child would be born, and they wouldn't even name him. They'd just call him useful, which in Latin is the word onesimus. You might be familiar with that name, especially if you grew up in the Catholic Church. You might be familiar with St. Onesimus. This means useful. The guy was a slave. Or they might just call him third or fourth. That was the context in which Paul wrote his letter to the Christians in Rome. He writes to them, and he's writing this to the, the imperial capital. He's writing his most important theological document. He's writing, and this is all that I've learned about living and learning about the community of Jesus. And here's what you guys need to understand. And I want to I look at probably the most underpreached chapter in the most preached uh, 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 book of the Bible, which is Romans uh, 16. Paul is, is the, the, in chapter 16, he's giving all these personal greetings. That's why we don't ever preach on it, because it's just Paul just saying hi to people. He's like, and say hi to this guy, and say hi to that guy. But if you look at those names, he's just saying hi to anyone. He's saying hi to slaves. He's saying hi to centurions. He's saying hi to rich people, to poor people, to somebodies, to nobodies, to men and women. He's saying hi, and it's all just intermingled together. He's just, hey man, I haven't been there, but I'm going to come, and I just want to greet you personally. And he's saying hi to all these people. And then, in verse 22, it says this, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Who's this guy? Who is Tertius? He's a scribe. He was the one who was writing down the letter as Paul was dictating it. In fact, his background was probably that he learned literacy at a young age, because you realize most people weren't literate at this time in history. But he learned it probably because he was a house slave in the house of a nobleman. He probably spent his entire life being invisible, nobody noticing him, nobody caring about him or what he had to say, but writing down the words of other important people. This is a person who had no name. He was named third. Tertius is the Latin word for third. And in this moment, as he's writing down this letter from Paul, at the end of it, Paul pauses and says, I imagine he would say, would you like to say hi to them? His most important theological document, going to the imperial capital. Hey, third, would you like to say hi? I see you. You're not nobody. You matter to God and you matter to me. And that's the community that we are a part of. Is it any wonder that the church changed this planet? Love everyone. 
But how can you love people you don't even know, right? You don't even know these people. How can you say, I love you? Well, here's what I think. If we got people out here who hate others for no reason, then I can love others for no reason. We know the world's got that. You hate people for no reason. Well, you know what? Then I can love people for no reason. I can sit here and say, you matter to God. I believe in my core that you matter to God, that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again. And that's no big, that's no small thing. You matter to God, so you matter to me. Love everyone. Start by loving everyone. But this isn't some lovey-dovey, huggy-wuggy stuff, right? It's like, ah, I bring you love. You know, you walk in the door, I love you. And people are like, ooh, what's that? You know, that's weird. I want to I give you some real practical things to put in your tools. And I, I, I want to see here this because I think this is what we can go and do now. The Apostle Paul, who, had, who, like I said, when he had wrote Romans, he had learned with Christians. He had learned about this Christian community. He had experienced it himself. And when he was writing to the Christians in a city called Corinth, that they were struggling with this issue. They were struggling with their community. There was a lot of fighting, and it wasn't the community that it should have been. This is what he writes to them. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. If I could describe it like this, love is patient and kind and generous and humble and honoring or dignifying. And love is selfless. And love is self-controlled. And love is forgiving. What would our community look like if in every situation we asked ourselves, what does love require of me in this situation? Does love require of me to be patient? Is that how I show this person love in this situation? Is it that I need to show kindness? There's some kindness that I need to demonstrate to them. Is it that I need to be humble and not lift myself up above others and not be arrogant and say, hey, look at me, but man, to show these people love, I need to be humble. Maybe it's that I need to give them dignity because these are people, maybe this person is someone who has never been treated with dignity. So you're nobody, you're invisible, but I will treat you as a human who has inherent dignity. Maybe that's what love requires of me in this situation. Maybe it means me being selfless, that I'm not going to look first to my needs and my wants and my desires, but I'm going to think about what you need and what you want, and I'm going to try to be selfless. Maybe it means being self-controlled, that I'm not going to just do what makes me feel good in this situation. I'm not going to just do what my impulse is in this situation, but I'm going to control myself. Maybe it means forgiving. I just need to let it go. I just need to release you of this obligation. And I want to tell you that I'm not saying this as someone who has mastered this. And I have to say that because my wife is sitting back there and she would give me a talking to after this sermon. She's like, what are you up there talking about? How are you? You know, like, I am not perfect at this, but man, I am trying to implement this more into my marriage. I'm trying to implement this more into people that I'm trying to do life with. What does love require of me in this situation? It can't be more practical than that. Is it patience or kindness or generosity or humility? So I want to encourage all of us, like we said last week, 50% of community is showing up. So I want to encourage you to show up when we gather on Sundays. I want to encourage you to be a part of a, of a small group 
or a disciple group, man. If you're not part of a group that meets in each other's homes and eats dinner together and, and, and has conversations and, and, and studies the Word of God together and, and challenges and encourages each other, man, I want to encourage you to do that. Bob's going to be out in the lobby um, after we dismiss today. Go talk to him on your way out. At least give him your name and email or something like that. Go talk to him and say, man, I want to show up to this. I want to start doing this. Um, but let's do this and start from love. Let's be willing to love anyone because life is better when we live it together. And it's, <laughs> it's sometimes difficult, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for loving us because we know we can be difficult to love. Lord, we know that we are your imperfect children. You've invited us into your family and we sometimes are so spoiled and we sometimes don't even get it at all. And Lord, we just thank you for loving us just so insistently, just so, just, just crazy. Thank you for that, Lord, because we know we, we didn't initiate that and, and we don't always deserve that and we're, we didn't earn it. You just give it to us freely. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for forgiving us, for having patience with us, for showing us kindness. Thank you for being generous with us and, and, and even giving us dignity. Thank you for demonstrating love to us by Jesus dying on the cross. Thank you for showing us beyond the shadow of a doubt. God, please let this place be a place that is primarily characterized by love. Let the love be just, your spirit is just poured out in this place and it's a spirit of love in every word that we say, in every action, in everything that we initiate, in every response that we have to each other, that the love is just so prevalent that anyone who gathers with us can't help but notice that there's something different about this group of people. Lord, let us reach out to all those around us, to people far from God, to people who maybe have been hurt by uh, your church family before. Lord, help us to love them in a way that entices them back to you. Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on us. Lord, help us. Just allow us to experience the benefits of your family. Give us joy and give us fun and give us excitement, and help us to be energized, and help us to encourage each other, help us to strengthen each other, and to lift each other up, and help us to speak hard truths in each other's lives, to reveal things that we need to know. Lord, let us just enjoy it, and have fun with it, and let it all be to give you glory. So where people say, Jesus is amazing. And we pray this in his name. Amen. As mentioned earlier, today is Veterans Day, a day to thank those who have served or are serving in the military. Each week, we take time in our service to thank someone else, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself instituted this memorial time. He came to earth and waged a one-man war against the evil power of sin and he defeated it in a most unusual way by taking all of our sin on himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We have tables around the back that have the elements that represent this, pieces of bread that represent his body that was given for us, the juice of the vine that represents his shed blood, because of his sacrifice, we can now be right with God. I will pray, and then you are welcome to get the elements, return to your seat, and have a time with those around you to thank Jesus for what he has done.
before partaking of these elements.